Hello there, Gil here. Just a quick note to let you know what's going on. We were planning on recording a new episode this weekend, but between Lillian moving and my birthday, that turned out to be impossible. You can expect a new episode from us next Monday. But we didn't want to just give you nothing today, so we thought we'd break protocol a bit and release an episode that had formerly been locked behind our Patreon paywall. Uh, we threw up a poll to help us pick which one over on Twitter, and thanks very much for everyone who cast a vote. It looks like the winner is episode 24, What's Left of Foucault. So here that is in its full glory for all to hear. If you enjoy it, consider signing up to our Patreon, where you can listen to all of the other Locked episodes as well. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Based on what you and Will are saying, I feel like maybe Foucault just has like an utterly corrosive effect on like emancipatory struggle. <laughs> like, I, I... today is Lillian. Hi. Gil. Hello. And Will. Yo. So for today's episode, we're talking about Foucault. Foucault's work is often broken up into different periods, the the structuralist, so-called archaeological period uh, of the mid to late 1960s, the period focused on disciplinary power and the birth of the prison in the early to mid-1970s, the biopower and governmentality period of the late 70s and early 80s. We're not even going to try on this podcast to provide a synoptic view of his work and thought as it, as it develops and transforms through these periods. Instead, we've decided to focus our discussion around two lecture courses Foucault delivered in the early 70s while he was preparing and drafting Discipline and Punish in a post-68 intellectual milieu that was dominated by Marxism and Althusser's thought in particular. The first course is the 71-72 lectures on penal theories and institutions, in which he analyzes a popular revolt in 1639 Normandy and the repressive systems of anti-sedition that developed in response to that revolt. Uh, the second course is the 72-73 lectures on the punitive society in which he analyzes the larger social antagonisms that provide the macro context for his account of the so-called microphysics of power that he gives in Discipline and Punish. And he proposes to call these social antagonisms, of which class struggle is a central case, civil war. This whole period of his work, which ends roughly in 77, sees Foucault preoccupied with what's been called the war model of power relations in which he tests the explanatory power of different hypotheses for understanding social and political antagonism. Power as social war, power as civil war, power as race war. Uh, I think he's trying to appropriate, expand, and jettison aspects of the Marxist concept of class war in this period of his work. So given that we plan to discuss Foucault's fraught relationship with the left, his work from this period seemed like seemed to me like a good launchpad for that discussion. So I thought I'd, I guess I thought I'd start by asking uh, if this Foucault, like from this period, these lectures, strikes you all as a bit as a bit of a different Foucault than the one we hear about a lot these days. 
Or is this just more of the same from the postmodern neoliberal CIA op? So I just finished reading an article about uh, f- how the CIA was super down with like Derrida and Foucault and wanted to see departments in the U.S. be taken over by that stuff because it made the left much more anodyne and harmless than like wow. Marxist like class workers. <laughs> Owens yeah. in the paint. He's in the yeah, paint. Okay, so I would yeah, right, right, begin it. with Duncan. <laughs> Uh, I mean, come on. I I assumed this was going to be a bit of a dunk fest, and I was gonna I was gonna come to our guys' defense, but I guess I've come out swinging. A little yeah, bit. coming out swinging. Yeah, you're antagonizing us. True. Well, I mean, so on the one hand, like I get why there is this perception of Foucault as, like you said, kind of it's more anodyne than like direct invocations of class antagonism in some ways. But this early 70s stuff is interesting in so far as he's like actually very willing to discuss the formation of like antagonisms in class terms and like trying to think kind of carefully about the relationships between like the sort of nascent bourgeoisie. It's like, you know, the early 1600s, this uh, this revolt, the new pied that he's like looking at um, and like that it's a revolt against the imposition of certain taxes that are like levied precisely against a kind of, you know, a poor, you know, working class uh, that like is the occasion. There's a way in which he can't avoid being very sort of class focused because of the object of analysis, which is really interesting. And, and it is on the one hand, you ask the question, is it, is it continuous with or a break from the Foucault? I know like it's kind of both. You know, like mm-hmm. he's very careful and sensitive to these relationships. But because of like the specific character of this revolt that he's talking about, he can't avoid thinking about these economic and class relationships in ways that he can elsewhere. Wait, who's the Foucault, you know, like when you're like, this is the it's kind of similar. It is and it isn't similar to the Foucault. Is this the CIA op Foucault or is this <laughs> I'm just trying well, to get cl- clear on it. And what all of our Foucaults are. I mean, my favorite Foucault is the discipline in Punish Foucault. That's yeah. my favorite mm-hmm. Foucault for sure. I'm I'm also like familiar with the like birth of sexuality stuff. And I do think about him in these terms. I don't have much to say about like the 60s Foucault, the earlier, more sort of formal, discursive, structuralist Foucault. Like the archaeology of knowledge is impenetrable to me. My brain can't get it. So I, I think of the mid-70s stuff as being the Foucault I quote, no, I guess. But then again, he's, he's been taken up in all these like ways, mostly coming out, I think, most influentially out of the, the history of sexuality, I think is like the most influential Foucault. Yeah, I think a bit of like important context for this Foucault, because this is the Discipline and Punish Foucault. He was drafting, even though Discipline and Punish was published in 75, like he was working on it and drafting it like while he was delivering these lectures. Uh, but I, I don't know, I guess for me, the, there's, there are certain kind of caricatures of Foucault, which are maybe not, maybe, I don't know, they're kind of also partly accurate. Like the later Foucault, or Gill's always making jokes about how Foucault in that period is obsessed with like Roman gymnasts and, you know, the care of the self, <laughs> the praxis of the self stuff. But, but more just like the, the kind of like power is everywhere. It's super ubiquitous. And so it's equally nebulous kind of Foucault, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, and, mm-hmm. and resistance likewise is also, uh, is also everywhere or whatever that somewhat of a caricature, but also partly accurate view of, of that later Foucault. I just feel like, and maybe as a bit of context too, it's important to acknowledge that this is in the early seventies, like Foucault's kind of one period of his life, or maybe, the, maybe the most politically militant period of his life. 
And I don't want to exaggerate the political militancy we're talking about here. I mean, he was involved in this group called the Group for Prison Information, in which they tried to like dis- disseminate accounts of prisoners themselves, the Jeep, disseminate accounts of prisoners themselves, their experiences in prison. And he was involved as an activist. And, and there were some other like French intellectuals from that milieu that were also involved. But um, I don't know, this, this just strikes me as a, as a period in which Foucault is less kind of caught up in the tiny, tiny minutia of historical analysis that he sometimes seems to be drawn into in uh, other parts of his, uh, other parts of his work. And it's actually giving us some like stakes, some like big, like macro stakes. Okay. Like why is there a prisoner penitentiary system? Well, Mm -hmm. the bourgeoisie needs to deal with this problem called sedition. There's a class here that has a certain problem. And this is the explanation of how I know Marxists tell you that class war is the motor of history, but this is actually how these institutions practices were Mm -hmm. set up in order to individuate, yeah. serialize, disempower. Th- this is the one place, for me at least, in Foucault's work where I just feel like the stakes are really palatable, right? He's trying to mm-hmm. give an account of what a particular class tries to impose on another class to try to explain how it is that the whole system, the whole penitentiary and punitive system we live under is not just a set of historical contingencies, but actually part of a concerted effort by a class mm-hmm. to impose a certain order uh, and and to undermine the potentialities for sedition in that order. Um, mm. And it just, you know, you don't hear, at least I don't think, you know, I'm not a Foucault expert, but you don't hear Foucault in most of what I've read giving us such like palpable historical and political stakes for the things he's analyzing. You pick up discipline and punish yeah. and you get right into the kind of microphysics of power, the shaping, you know, the panopticon and the shaping of subjects and the shaping of the the reform of the soul and all of this. But this stuff, I mean, you get a better sense for like, well, why is all that happening? Like, why are these new systems of power being implemented? Mm-hmm. Well, there's a, a kind of class antagonism story that uh, that needs to be told in order to understand the kind of macro context for that. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so what I actually you know, really enjoyed about these lectures, and I think I might be a bit warmer to Foucault than um, others on the left is. So, you know, I, the, sometimes the way that I understand Foucault, the caricature of Foucault is it turns him into this grand narrative of power is everywhere, you know, and but for some reason, there's also resistance within power. And you can just deploy Foucault in whatever context that you want. But, you know, Foucault here doesn't is not trying to give some grand narrative. So sometimes there's a way of understanding a version mm-hmm. of Marxism that wants to give a grand narrative mm-hmm. of class struggle is the motor and you know, whatever context you come up with, you know, the shape will look different, but I can tell you how it works. But here we're getting specificity. Like you know, when he starts talking about the emergence of the criminal, I think that there's something you know really helpful in foregoing the need to give a grand narrative and say, so how does this specific institution emerge and what problem is it trying to solve or who is trying to use Use this institution to solve a particular problem to stabilize a new um, type of order. So rather than giving us a sort of metaphysical claim, what can seem like a metaphysical claim about here's what always happens, instead mm. we can ask specific questions. So what is crime? And you know, I, I, I know we don't want to say crime is completely socially constructed, but we want to ask, well, how did this become a type of practice in view of what? If we don't assume that the figure of the criminal is simply something natural, like he gives a story of how what changes is it, even if the victim of a crime doesn't want to press charges, the criminal is you know, a threat to the state or the public yeah, itself. Social and so this is a new form of the public where the public can say, regardless of your individual stake in this crime that happened to you, it is in the state state's interest to still prosecute it. And that is, you know, a different configuration of a set of relations that allows you to understand like, oh, 
that is actually a shift that helps me understand. So what is going on with the criminal? If it's not only about sort of it was immoral what you did to this individual, but you know the criminal stands as a as a sign of of a threat to the coherence of state discipline. And I think that is real something really illuminating to see to allow you to see shifts rather than having a narrative that you just sort of cookie cutter put in and explain everything. Yeah, I mean it's interesting in this context that he's able to like you know cite early modern juridical practices where like the king the sovereign the monarch would like come face to face with the criminal because it is as you say no longer a harm done to an individual but rather a threat or a damage done to the integrity of the social order that defines criminality that it's it's not about making whole or making good or making right the person that you've done wrong but rather the danger of undermining this like integrity that like is really at stake and this is this does in fact seem to be like a novel thing uh Mm -hmm. this doesn't seem to actually have uh something correspondent prior to like 1500s or whatever this is a new a new way of articulating what it is that's quote wrong Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I like your point of it too, but Will, about the, the grand narratives that he doesn't, you know, because he makes this this point about the, the emergence of the criminal as a social enemy and not just as somebody who has like wronged somebody and has to make reparations for that wrong. You know, so that he does that analysis and then later he kind of shifts the analysis and says, well, there's also this category of illegalisms. And I know we didn't get too much into that in... Um, in what we read for today. But he, this concept of illegalisms, which he also introduces at the end of Discipline and Punish, um, is basically, he contrasts it with like actual just like infractions of the law and says that in the modern punitive system, there are plenty of things that might be like illegal or legal on the books, but they're not actually meant to be enforced all the time, right? They're not actually meant to be, um, you know, and, and and also like the class character of the infraction matters too. And so there are these moments that he analyzes where he's like, when do, for instance, like the nascent bourgeoisie get involved and demand yeah. that the demand that like the law is enforced? Part of what's interesting is that like he's pointing out in in the punitive society lectures that seemingly everybody is aware that the universality of the law is bullshit, right? Like everyone knows, both the legislators and the, uh, and the people who are subject to the law are aware that the law isn't actually by and for everyone, right? That the law is... is uh, it's made by people that it's not meant to apply to, right? Correct. And it's applied to people right. that didn't write it. And, you know... Yeah, exactly. And there seems to be a kind of recognition of this point. One of the interesting questions, I guess, that I have coming out of this is like, it's fascinating that there seemingly was this like awareness of that truth, which in our sort of moment is not a matter of widespread consciousness or recognition. A lot of people, I think, if you were to ask them, would say that, of course, the laws apply to everyone indifferently and equally. Yeah, but we all know that like white, you know, white collar people in towers are allowed to do as much blow as they want. Right. And, uh, <laughs> right. and in certain places, nobody cares if you're drinking outside. But if you're in an area that's gentrifying, you know, the laws now apply differentially. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. But I think I think that like most people, even when they recognize that, like recognize that as an exception and not the rule. Right? Mm-hmm. 
which seems to be mm. the thing that he's pointing out here. Yeah, what I what I take, you know, and I, I, I understand like you know, sometimes you know, Foucault will say things, I'm not just trying to give you a method that you're supposed to, you know, walk around with that, you know, you know, he wants to have some specificity, but you know, it, 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 this is a, a specific way of trying to ask questions about, you know, even though it seems like he's just talking about history, it's always quite clear when you're reading Foucault, he wants to be commenting on his present society. Mm-hmm. He wants to give us so some sort of vantage point that shakes off the preconceptions that we have that allows us to return to these questions from a new vantage point. And you know, by focusing on issues of you know criminality or civil war, he's asking us to look again at what does it mean for um, an order to stabilize itself. I, I like at the end of one of those lectures, he asks you, um, how does a society produce its enemies? How does it re- reach mm-hmm. a point of decomposition that it has so many internal em- enemies that it has to deal with? And I wonder if in our current context, you know, you know we're thinking a lot about crime. The numbers are sometimes hard to parse. It seems like maybe murders are going up in the United States, but other crimes are going down. It's, it's hard to know actually who to trust on these, <laughs> you know, on, on these statistics. But, you know, you want to be able to ask, well, so, you know, what can explain what is happening here? Why, you know, these crimes are, are being committed? And what um, is criminality supposed to be doing for a broader society rather than naturalizing it as it's clearly about some sort of restitution that the individual gives, but we're asking broader questions of what is the state or the public's investments in um, this category of crime? And so I, I think he's trying to shift our sort of present conceptions of what our social order is and give us a, um, another way in to analyzing these uh, uh, conjunctures. So like, why is it this way though? I mean, like, there's this way in which, like, at the beginning of the conversation, Owen was like, this is the Foucault in which you get to see the stakes of his analysis. And it seems like what you guys are saying is, like, the stakes of the analysis are to, like, denaturalize things, to give us a new perspective, to see how, in the usual, like, Foucaultian fashion, power is produced. It's not just, you know, repressive. So people, like, the, the criminal is made and social movements kind of shape the conditions in which, you know, they have to then be controlled. It's just not like raw repression all the time. The kind of repression is actually a produced kind of repression. But like, I actually don't quite always understand, like there, that's like a meta point that like is runs throughout all of Foucault's work. And like, I think that that's probably the thing you can't take away from Foucault like you have to kind of give him his flowers like the argument against the repressive hypothesis whether it's like through sexuality or through the status of the criminal or whatever that's the thing I'm always sympathetic to but what I don't actually understand is like the angle that he's making us look at this through like I don't know why it has to be that way like why civil war and like why his obsession with the state and like Mm. why like not any other number of explanations that don't wait, have to wait, be teleological. His obsession with the state. Well, like, so when you say, like, like the state kind of produces the, the criminal and he's, like, uh, interested in the particular kind of transition of sovereign power, like, it's interesting, but I don't actually always understand, like, there is another way into these problems, I'm sure, you know, like, and I think that what I don't always understand is about Foucault and what I mean by like not always understanding the stakes is that he is so historical in the way that he like reads these developments. But like, you know, historians are kind of notorious for being like overly descriptive, obsessed with events and not offer always offering explanations. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like when we read Foucault, we're always, we're seeing these developments and we're seeing the developments of these forms of power and these discourses. 
And like, I'm never quite sure we're actually talking about an explanation. It seems to me like we're putting together a story or mm. a pattern. And it's interesting. Like, I think there are some things he gets right. I'm not like fully anti-Foucault. I just like, it seems like we always talk about this, like he's explaining something. And I just assume that, mm. you know, like social scientists have other ways of explaining these things, mm -hmm. no? What I'd want to say here is that I, I want to like agree with both of you and say that like why I think Owen's right to say that this, this weird moment in the early 70s is when the stakes are clearest is precisely because like if you re even in Discipline and Punish, it's not clear why this is happening. Like it is this like catalog of descriptions mm -hmm that doesn't have a coherent sort of narrative or historical sort of weirdly it's a kind of absent historical contextualization right like mm -hmm. you get these like i always think there's this really funny line in like i think the second version of the introduction to ian hacking's book the emergence of probability where he's like yeah i was kind of doing the foucault thing where you're like look at how they talked about this now and then, oh, look, 80 years later, look at how they talk about the same thing. It looks so different. It's crazy. And it's, hey, whoa. Whoa. Everything's different. Like, we're using different terms and concepts. There's a different mode of schematization. And, like, a lot of Foucault is like this where I think you're right, Lily. And, like, there's not an explanation, actually. It's just, like, there once was this way and now there is this way of talking. Um, or of making sense of things. But here in the early 70s, he's like, actually, it's about class, <laughs> um, which yeah. is not something that he usually does, uh, I don't mm -hmm. think. Yeah, it shows like criminality at various points in history has been sometimes useful, right, for or class antagonisms. There have been moments where like the nobility found a certain kind of criminality useful and later it becomes no longer beneficial to coordinate with that kind of criminality. And so then the whole juridical framework has to shift in order to single out, isolate and attack this form of criminality, which was previously acceptable. Mm -hmm. But I think so. I don't think you're wrong. I think, but I do think that a lot of what he's doing is like attacking a certain model of explanation, which is the kind of discourse of political philosophy, which says that the way, you know, which gives a kind of genetic account of institutions, practices and norms from a history of like enlightenment and mm. um, from and from a, a kind of history of basically well, an idealist history of the development of like concepts of right. And he says, like, if you want to actually see like where these where the, the, the systems of power that we live under, where they come from, you don't don't look to a genetic account of a political philosophical genetic account that says that at a certain point, private property became a good idea. And then like, you know, that, that seemed like it was a more right and just idea. So we, you know, he says, look at the kinds of war, look at the kinds of antagonisms right, that were driving history at that moment. And class antagonism is one of those. And it seems in these lectures, like it's the most important antagonism for him in terms of what drives the history of systems of at least punitive power. Um, but to look at those antagonisms as the motive of that history rather than looking at the kind of idealist concepts that were produced by those historical moments. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it seems like you're what, you know, what Foucault is doing is, is he's challenging a model of history that really does seem to sometimes take those like some, some famous person you've heard of came up with this great idea. And we were like, you know what? We have rationally assessed that that is a good idea. Instead, yeah. he wants you to look at you have to go to like the marginalia of history to see the sort of bloody struggles and fights mm -hmm. that were happening for these concepts to be produced. Yeah. What I'm not always getting from Foucault and maybe Foucault things will jump all over me over this is so I can sometimes see the explanation I can sometimes see why it's interesting to look at it this way what is the prescription we're supposed to take from all of this though 
Yeah. You know, because I, I don't think it's as anything as facile as you. Know, so now that we know the sort of bloody history and the class antagonism behind the concept of criminality, we're supposed to abolish criminality. Foucault never says anything as yeah. easy as all yeah. of that. He doesn't give us a moral. Yet it cannot be that he's just like, like it cannot be like what you were describing with Ian Hacking. Like he's just like, isn't this really interesting? Yeah. How I mean, these I don't things know. Shifted? I do. I do kind of sense sometimes when I, re- I mean, most of the time when I read Foucault, just that there is some kind of deep substrate of nihilism that runs through <laughs> that runs through the work i mean it's not like you mm. I, I don't think you have to expect of him that you know to reevaluate values or whatever or to give us a full like kind of normative account of what follows meet the from. nietzschean challenge man you don't man even is have something to that must go down <laughs> yeah, you don't even have to do the bourgeois like norms thing. Like, just give us a revaluation of values or something. But you don't even get that. I think you're right that like that's not something that's like there in in Foucault. But by the way, like Foucaultians are so guilty of this, like this oh facile yes. prescriptivism about like how to like try to not be a governed, desirous like neoliberal subject. I do feel like I, I think you're right, Gil. Like, and uh, so the so aside from these texts, like when Owen is saying like there is this kind of like deeper way in which like. Foucault is like pretty self-aware that like about the limits of his own analysis. Like I, I do appreciate that about him. Like I don't always get the feeling. I mean, the things he says about Marxism in general usually just piss me off. But yeah. when I like yeah. put brackets around that, you know, cause like he's very responsible for like the Marxism and liberalism are actually the same. And that's pretty <laughs> much what, what we do now in philosophy. So <laughs> well, I think there's no question he's responsible for a lot of bad things. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, 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 so yeah. there's this way in which like, that despite whatever disagreements I might have in the way he frames things, like I do think that he's, you can't read this much and kind of be this thorough and pedantic if you're not actually aware of the limitations of your own framework. When you go really hard, so I've been watching a lot of basketball, that's why I have all the go in the paint metaphors. And Hell shit. yeah. But like, <laughs> when you go all really right, hard, bulls. yes. Hell yes. Five in one, baby. So like, <laughs> we have, um, just crushing it. Yes. So anyway. <laughs> Like when you go really hard like that, you can't possibly be unaware of like exactly what you're trying to prove and probably what you're not. You know, like you you don't like follow through like that if you think you're trying to exhaust the terrain of like social and political analysis or explanations. So like I kind of respect Foucault's boundaries. I don't respect Foucaultian's boundaries, man. Like they like (laughs) like there's this way in which I genuinely get the impression that it's just like biopower and it's just rolling bowling us over and we're just reproducing it and we don't know why and anything and you try to do to oppose it actually ends up just you know captured like you in reproducing you're captured in advance right. and you're reproducing yeah. it where yeah. you know and he says stuff like that here where it's like you know you effectuate you activate you reactivate you create the myth of power and there's mm. like a fundamental way in which that's true like that is kind of like how social movements and power structure like structures of power evolve but then like and and maybe this is just like being uncharitable but the reason i don't return to foucault as like a useful resource for myself is pretty much because i feel like whatever is like it's almost not worth digging beneath this like other stratum of the way foucault is interpreted that's Mm. kind of like a big picture problem Mm. i have but I do think that that's like my honest judgment. It's not that like I think Foucault isn't useful. It's that I'm just like not going to do battle with the stuff I find that's not useful to like get there. Like I'm never yeah. going to pursue that in my work. 
Yeah, I just thought point of, the point about the the minutia and the marginalia. I think is really interesting. Because one of the things one of the things I do like about Foucault and that I do go back to him for is some of his reconstructions of a certain historically specific discourse. There's not a lot of philosophers, right? Political philosophers that will be like, okay, we need to actually spend some time getting into what the levelers around the time of the English Civil War is like, and the levelers and diggers, as he talks about in Society Must Be Defended. What were they saying? Not just what were not were just like some of the statements they made. But what's the actual coherent thought inside of like the levelers and diggers like movement? And now he doesn't always like stick the landing because I feel like even with that specific <laughs> analysis, he's importing a lot of what he wants them to be saying. Like, right. look, they're not actually doing like class warfare here. They're doing like race war against the Normans, the, the Norman yoke, you know, um, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so I'm like, Sometimes I'm you like, got to invent your own ancestors, man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but like, and like, you know, I kind of feel like that's going to go awry a lot of the time. You know, when you're trying to talk for 30 pages or for two hours about what like some weaver said in like 17th century Brittany or something, right? And like why that's more important for the genesis of the state than what Hobbes said, right? right? And so like – and like it's fucking audacious and like sometimes it like almost kind of works and it blows me away. But yeah, I'm generally apprehensive about it. But I do think that, that – I, I still think it is a rich resource and I do still like go back to it for that. Well, so like on the one hand, I wanted to return to something that you said before. You wonder about a concept like criminality, right? And he's giving such a different kind of account than you do get in, as you said, like the sort of general, more or less still to this day, majoritarian accounts in political philosophy. And because of their weird idealism, right? Like, you know, if you read stuff like this today, it still sounds like this bananas nonsense that you get with like Kant and Hegel, where it's like, why do we punish the criminal? Well, they have done <laughs> wrong to the concept of right itself. And the concept yeah. of right demands that they be punished. And it's like, what, what the fuck are you people talking yeah, about? The <laughs> idea demands their punishment. The idea demands their punishment. And instead he's like, no, 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 wait, what are the actual sort of like contextually specific and historically sensitive conditions under which some people's sort of infractions are treated as serious and others not. And this does have to do with like, you know, like an account of, of power and it is deeply tied up with things like class and, and the nascent concepts of race. Like you said, he doesn't always stick the landing. <laughs> I don't think. <laughs> but the other thing that I wanted to say too, is that like, I like you Lillian am usually just, infuriated by his statements about Marxism as such. I think the context is somewhat helpful here, though. The PCF in France in the 60s and 70s was like straight up Stalinist. And this is the Marxism that he has in mind when he makes these denunciations, which is, I think we can say, an idealist, teleological, and frankly, unhelpful way of thinking about history, about theory and practice, that he's like, look at these people. These are the major representatives. And even like the Althusserian school, like we, you know, our very first episode of the show was about Althusser, with whom I'm maybe more sympathetic than I should be. But there's obviously idealistic elements there, right? And this is what he's responding to and saying, no, no, no. Can we instead of like constructing these weird grand narratives, like actually look at what people are doing and saying at these various conjunctures at the moment when something like the state is coalescing and becoming something that has some actual power. That makes sense to me. Latter-day Foucauldians should not just adopt wholesale this rejection of, quote, Marxism, because it's no, that's, yeah. the context is different. And Well, and despite Foucault's own statements, like, he didn't do that. Like, I, you can see the impact of Marxism, especially, I mean, it's probably why I like this 
this period of his work the best. Like you can see the impact of uh, of Marxism on the work that he does in the seventies. It's clearly there, despite his own really stubborn, yeah. really annoying, like just constant dismissals of Marxism. There's a funny line from Balibar that's uh, I guess Balibar did a response to the seventy one lectures where he says. Yeah, it's amazing how like Foucault like attributes to Althusser all the things that Althusser said he was replacing about Marxism. Like, you know, he, he attributes all of them, all the things that Althusser said, like, okay, these are the things that we need to replace. And, and Balibar says did replace. He's like, no, no, that's just what Althusser is actually about. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a big L right there. Yeah, it's a huge L. <laughs> So, so this is something that I'm having a hard time squaring, though. I want to be generous about you know what you know I think is really helpful and what Foucault is doing, but you know we keep coming back to our kind of um, distaste of Foucault's disavowal of Marxism, and I want to ask the question about what are supposed to be the pragmatics of this. So Foucault is able to get this you know very specific viewpoint on you know how criminality emerged and how the state emerged because he is you know, in, in a sense it actually helps. He is so far removed from that historical context context, that he's able to go into these you know, forgotten documents and start to rebuild this discourse. But you know, just because we are looking at how something like criminality formed back in the, the 16th or the 15th century, why should I believe that you know, one tells me anything about the contemporary context? And two, it seems to me, how would one do a Foucauldian analysis of one's present context when it seems nice. so much of what Foucault yeah. is doing is the historical distance makes it possible. And so so what one might find really helpful in Marxism is that Marxism is trying to, you know, um, certain versions of Marxist analysis are trying to give you general principles that even in different conjunctures will give you uh, the grounding or the handhold to be able to analyze a new situation. You know, obviously lazy Marxism is just like looking back at what people are doing in like the 1600s and be like, nothing's changed. Like, it's just that. It's just class warfare, baby. And I'm like, um, okay, I guess. I don't know. feel like, you know, things are a little bit different now. And so I, I'm trying to understand, like, when I'm reading this Foucault stuff, I know he wants us to be commenting on society, but why in the world should I be convinced that something that happened 500 years ago bears on not generating productive knowledge for us to understand what's happening now? Especially so if knowledge is as productive as he says. Like, and so that's why I think a lot of, like, the more contemporary stuff is seems so, like, I don't know, tendentiously related to, like, other historical and political developments because like if your primary method is like if I just like look at discourses and I see how they diverge and come back together and morph like there is a way in which like there has to be a structure for thinking about that like you can't just like pick random stuff and be like this is it this is the point of entry like I think right, that's what right. I was trying to say yeah. and I think that to Foucault's credit I don't think it's like random what he's doing, like those right, sources he's drawing right. on or, or whatever. Yeah. But there's nothing clarifying about like what, what, like what you should think of. Yeah, like what is it? And I think that the problem, and I'm just kind of stuck on this. I, I've tried, I fought myself, my postmodern self fought its way out, left my body after years and years. But like, I just don't think that the analysis is helpful. Like, okay, you're talking about discourse. Sweet. Like, if that's all there is and you can't say anything about mm -hmm. ideology or, you know, because, 
let me back up. Like what I think is really great about Foucault is that if you actually had some idea of, of truth, like falsifiable and scientific and not absolute and like wacky, then you could think of yourself as doing an idea, like thinking about how ideologies really form, you know, and it's, and that's super empowering in a certain way because mm. you can say, listen, they are dispersed. They're actually really contradictory. They're not coherent, which means you can shift them and you can think about why they would form in one place and not another based on other factors. And that seems dope, but like, he doesn't want to think like that. Like he doesn't think that there's like a reason that this is all happening. And that's why I think he has this misleading like way of saying, just like showing you a pattern because Mm -hmm. he thinks that in itself is demonstrating something. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I just think like if I, I'm I'm into truth, you know. I think you're you're trying to explain stuff. There's better and worse explanations. There yeah. are better and more or less accurate ways of thinking about your circumstances. Partial, you know. I can be a good continentalist in that way, but anyway, that's my two cents. Yeah, I mean, with Foucault and reason, if we wanted to be gen- generous to him, I think you know the best he could say is, I can give you local reasons why in this specific you know, context it seems like this thing might be happening. Uh, but then where it kind of falters is, you feel like I'm supposed to get some sort of general principle from this, right? But you know, the Foucault that we get, especially the Foucault who kind of like you know, crosses swords with Sartre, is that you know, Foucault isn't trying to be what he calls, uh, and this is a pejorative Foucault, I think um, some of the the general or the universal intellectual, that what we need is a specific intellectual who mm. takes stands on limited, very narrow issues and you know, just tries to dig into them. For all of like someone like Sartre's problems, it's that Sartre thought, I can help you, know, you grasp a general principle of what's going on, something transcontextual. And what I always get, you know, struggle with, and maybe it's, you know, not with Foucault, but maybe it's with Foucaultians per se, is that Foucault does all these specific analyses, but, you know, I never get him saying, so here's a transcontextual right. principle that will allow you to understand how I'm selecting these documents, why these are mm-hmm. the ones that help us understand this, this yeah. specific formation. But sometimes it feels as if, and I, I don't mean to be dunking on Foucaultians, some of my best friends are Foucaultians. I, I live next door to a Foucaultian. <laughs> you know? That's no excuse. Um, it's like, they read that, and then they're like, ah. Ah, so Foucault gave us a general history, and so we just need to do what he did. But it seems like he places limitations on his procedure or method that doesn't allow you to do that. So the best you can say is, in these local situations, here are these patterns that emerge, and here are the possible explanations we can give for what's happening. But I don't know what justifies looking at that and saying, and thus it follows in this other context. But Let if, me. If I, I know. I know you want to come back, Owen. Let me just like real quick add to this that like th- this is why this is precisely why I do that dunk on like the late Foucault, where mm-hmm. it's like let's look at gymnastics diaries from Roman antiquity because it's like, okay, he clearly thinks that this is illuminating for the present for some fucking reason. And I don't know why it is. And it's not clear why we should be reading that or thinking about that and not something else. Right. And like, it just doesn't vibe with me. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's not clear yeah. why the why the the discourse around Roman gymnastics is like a subjugated knowledge. You know, what he says he wants to do in genealogy, right? Like, you know, like, he says that he, in, in society we be defended, right? That yeah, what yeah. genealogy does it, it's an insurrection in knowledge. He calls it, right? We're gonna it's do like, it. We're what, gonna dude? like liberate subjugated discourses, right? These and like are doing a bunch like of fucking ablutions. Romans, like like doing yeah, doing like well, various you, different you, gymnastics, running marathons, if you yeah. will. 
Yeah. Well, it's yeah. because Italians are black, and he's trying to do what he can for his life. That is true. That is true. I forgot. That's I yeah, I Foucault is a good Rawlsian in this regard. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I wanted to come back to one thing, though, about the, the point about truth and some of what you were saying, Will, and like just ask a kind of like stupid outside of the internal well, so outside of the internal stakes of Foucauldian discourse, and just say, like, isn't it, like, true what he says about the birth of the prison, though? It, it isn't, like, in a pretty straightforward sense, right? Like, he does the historical work. He shows that this was never actually about reform. It wasn't actually about correcting. They're not correctional facilities. Like, they're not actually about correcting or improving people, right? They're actually about shaping, subjugating, sub, as he uses this language of, like, subjectivating, right? Creating a certain kind of docile subject, and that if you want to understand the kind of mechanisms by which we've become so governable, and I think that's a question worth asking, like, how the fuck have we become so governable? Because we are one governable fucking populace. He has <laughs> not, some answers. Not me, baby. You can't he has govern some, me. He, yeah, exactly. <laughs> he has, I'm he has free. Some answers, I'm right? built different. I'm outside. <laughs> yeah. Nobody can govern y'all. Uh, no, but the key, oh, yeah. he, has some, he has some answers and some... You know, maybe, you know, there's the meme about how the prison is everywhere. And that's one of his answers is like, well, there's this penitentiary model of like, you know, individuation and, you know, being rendered docile by institutions or whatever. But uh, I think that like, again, in a kind of stupid way, I mean, his account of, of the genesis of the prison and the penitentiary form mm. of subjectivation and surveillance. I mean, I, that seems to me just like. Definitely true compared to the other really stupid story, which is that people wanted to help these poor criminals like get better and, and join society and be happy. I mean, I don't. Do you see what I'm saying? I think I'm completely on Lillian's team here, though. Like, I think it is descriptively true what he says, and it's mm -hmm. not an explanation. Like, I mm. still don't like. It doesn't I, have I, causal. It doesn't have any yeah. causal sort yeah, of uh, um, account you know and i think it is i to to your but, point but he's it but is more lectures, descriptively yeah. accurate than the alternative let's call them ideological accounts of why it is that we imprison people yeah. and it still feels untethered from an actual causal story that would actually be inscribed within a historical sequence okay but the reason why i wanted to read these lectures is because i think there is an attempt at a causal explanation in these lectures in a way that I don't see anywhere else in his work, right? He tries yeah, to say, yeah. this is the history of the bourgeoisie. This is their system of punishment and penitentiary. And this is the function that it serves, right? Yeah, it has a, yeah. it's, it's very economically important. Like he gets into in the 19th century, this is later in the lectures, I get into the 19th century when, when it basically industrialization happens and there are massive concentrations of like products in one place and all these workers, it's not like people coming in to steal stuff. It's like now workers are really close to, all of this really valuable stuff and they're actually in charge of like taking care of it. And so like, he's like, well, now the whole system of punishment, a whole new set of laws, a whole new way of administering justice mm. has to be devised in order to protect massive stocks of capital from worker yeah. depredation. Right. Yeah. And so like okay. that, that, that is, that is to me like, is that right or wrong? I don't know. I'm saying that is at least like close to a, like as close to a genetic account or a causal account as I think you're going to get uh, in, in Foucault. And so, yeah. yeah. Agreed. Okay. So if it's as close to a causal account, then I just have to ask back to Gil's earlier point, like, why is that not just a very Althusserian way of doing things? And like, I mean, it just seems to me like that's kind of the argument you would make if you like thought there were ideological state apparatuses that basically served the function of stabilizing well, the society no, what, for class well, interests, no? Well, what he says in those 71 lectures is that he actually is disagreeing with Althusser and saying, well, not to say disagreeing, but just saying, look, like, 
I'm not going. I'm not going to focus on the ideological apparatuses stuff. Right? This is before he his whole turn against the repressive hypothesis, and he actually is like, listen, the whole repressive apparatus, like y'all, you guys all just take that for granted, right? You think the interesting one is the ideological apparatus, like that's what mm. you really need to understand. And everybody just thinks, oh, the repressive apparatus. Right. Obviously, the cops will just bash your face, and if, if you do something that's not in like the ruling class's interest, and he's like, no, 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 no. Like, let's step back and actually like look at this repressive apparatus, how it functions who it's meant to, to benefit and serve mm. and who it targets and the way it targets them, right? Nice. I, I mean, yeah. so much better to me than like later just being like, okay. yeah, the repressive hypothesis is stupid. Power is only productive. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I agree with that. That makes sense. And I've also thought like in reading Discipline and Punish and these like early 70s lectures, like it feels like what he's trying to do is give an account of the reproduction, not of the relations of production, Mm-hmm. Right, which is, I think, what the the analysis of ideology is meant to do in Althusserian sort of milieus, but the the mechanisms of the reproduction of labor power, right, the forces of production, like that's what like the analysis mm-hmm. of this microphysics of power is about, like you know how these bodies are produced and reproduced that are going to be productive, maximally productive, and so on. Like that all that all tracks. This I like, and I can get down with. But I want to come back to something that Will said before, because I think there's still like a weird method problem in Foucault that I've never been able to figure out, which is, as you said, Will, it seems as though we have the ability in like a Foucauldian key to analyze discourses and structures of power only because they belong to the past, right? And so like there's a sort of weird like we can't talk about the present because we're still enmeshed within contemporary forms of power we're too inside of its discursive sort of Al of Minerva, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. So like if we can only talk about, you know, what was going on in the birth of the prison in the 1600s or whatever, because it's 300 years ago, how, how then is this meant to shed light on the present? If I can't talk about the present in the same way, because I'm within these discourses, right? It seems like either I can't speak about the present or I can, but this seems like something that he methodologically sees as illegitimate. Does this make sense? You know, in, yeah, I, I, I kind of want to jump in because this is also yeah, what I was ahead. thinking. Because sometimes, you know, my issue is it sometimes seems like we're helping Foucault out because he is not, at least from <laughs> what I can tell from everything he's saying, he's not just trying to give you a linear history. This right. isn't him just saying, you know, we went from A to B to C. I can understand if he's doing, you know, and I would call that, you know, these kind of language, you know, something vertical. Like, you know, he's trying to say transcontextually, I'm showing you how this is happening and this is the principle that's still operative. But if he's doing something horizontal, then, you know, it makes sense that he's talking about a bounded context and saying, you've misunderstood this historical moment. Mm. And I'm going to shatter your perception of what was going on there. And that sometimes it feels very much like, A, shatter your historical conception of what's going on there. B, question mark. C, new subjectivity. And I'm like, <laughs> what's the B? Because, you know, if, if, if it's not as simple as him saying, this is how the prison formed. And so I'm giving you another linear history, a, you know, an, another linear history that you didn't realize, then we do have to explain how we make the contextual jump. Like, look, you're not going to hear me say, actually, it turns out, you know, 300 years later, prisons really are about correction. And, you know, it's <laughs> all about emancipating the individual. You won't hear me saying that. 
But, you know, I, there's sort of a, a, a meta argument that needs to be made mm -hmm. of how do we go from the horizontal contextualism to, you know, not just giving another linear history, if that's what, you know, on Foucault's own terms, not what he's trying to do. Mm -hmm. If that is what he's trying to do, then it's unclear how he's different from other historians. Yeah, I wish I could remember what else he said in he has this interview where he says that what his work is about is about doing a history of the present. Right. But it, he says it's about understanding the present. Right. But I, I completely agree that I I don't see what the principle of connection is between the present and the various discrete historical instances that he examines. Yeah, because sometimes like, you know, and I don't want to be like, you know, too hard on the guy and all that. But, you know, sometimes it, it can feel like it's very impressionistic. Like, you know, the yeah. thing is, I can get on board when, you know, when Foucault starts giving like rich descriptions of how space is partitioned and how bodies are moving. It's really hard not to look at that and say, like, there, there's something very true there. Totally. I am getting insight mm -hmm. into how relations are reproduced, given a very materialist account that it turns out boy, the way buildings are structured isn't just, you know, a lark. Mm -hmm. But it's about how do we constrain certain habits and expectations and produce a certain type of either docility or governability. But mm. on the other hand, I don't think we want to say that these principles that we see in their you know, formation 300 years from, from our uh, present just remain stable. And right. you know, mm -hmm. it's just carrying forward. They can't have. And that's why sometimes it's helpful to have the meta framework that would be able to explain why certain changes emerge. But it's that seems to be the very thing that Foucault wants to withdraw from us, right? Maybe the issue is like use the word like uh, a materialist account. We talked about materialism. Maybe we should actually just ask like, is Foucault like a materialist? And if he is, like, what kind of materialist is he? Because he's not a historical materialist in the Marxist sense. Um, and yet, like the intervention, his intervention in especially the discourses of political philosophy, people that talk about talk about sovereignty and right, is that they basically have an idealist account that is totally unmoored from the kinds of institutions, the actual history and institutions and practices. Yeah, on the ground practices. And antagonisms, including mm -hmm. class antagonisms that gave rise to those concepts, which is, a you know, I think a thoroughly materialist move. But I don't know, I'm just mm -hmm. curious if you guys have any thoughts on, on, on like what... That can be called a, a materialist and like what kind of materialist? I know the discourse stuff from the 60s is definitely not materialist, right? Like that is like <laughs> that episteme stuff, right? The archaeology, the historical a priori archaeological right. stuff. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think it'd be fair to call it materialist, but. I mean. Yeah, I'm hard pressed. I don't does know. Does it really matter? Does it matter to answer, answering that question? I'm just, I don't know. Well, in as much as like we, I think all agree that like a materialist approach is a prerequisite for. Mm -hmm. having a non-mystified understanding of the present and of the historical conditions that made it possible. And also, like, therefore, like, what we would need to do about things, then I think it is an important question. And I'm hard-pressed mm -hmm. to say that I think that Foucault is a materialist. I don't know. Uh, yeah. I, I, I do wonder for a couple of different reasons. I think you're right that his challenge is always that prevailing historical and theoretical accounts are idealist. But then mm -hmm. when I read what it is that he's doing, I'm like, I'm not sure if this actually at the end of the day is materialist in a meaningful way. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Could it be both of those? Could yeah, no, I think that's, things? I think so actually that makes sense because you know, he, he's interested in not like the philosophical discourse that you find in, you know, great philosophy tomes, but he's still interested in discourses ultimately. It's like discourses Always. happening Always by discourse. people who run prisons or like discourses happening by, you know, superintendents at a school or something, right? Like 
it is still discourses ultimately. Um, yeah, even like the the new Pied, right? He's like in these 71, 72 lectures, he's like, yeah, yeah. look at how they talk about who their leader is and they made up a leader and they have a mythical yeah. figure of the leader. He's yeah. still interested primarily in how people talk about themselves. And yeah. it's just not clear that that's good enough. I mean, like yeah. to go back to what like mm. Will was saying before, like this is part of why I think we all identify as Marxists It's because Marxism allows us not to talk just about how people talk about themselves, but the laws of motion of capital tendencies that mm. are imminent to the social structure about accumulation, these dynamisms that like have a logic that we can identify, which doesn't have anything to do with how people talk about who they think they are or whatever. Right. It's mm -hmm. uh, there's something there. There's a real there there, you know, mm -hmm. that like I sometimes worry there isn't. But maybe he would say, though, that like the Marxists don't talk about the kind of what he calls the capillary points in like systems of power, right? Mm -hmm. The maybe. points that are at uh -huh. the far edges, the marginal liminal points that they don't seem like they have a kind of agency in the way our society is structured. And yet nothing could be more important than looking at what happens in this sure. neglected part of our society or this neglected in mm -hmm. practice or something. I don't know. I mean, if that's like I'm trying my best here to give then, to, yeah. <laughs> like, you're doing a you, great job. I would <laughs> just be like, dude, like if that's how you feel, then why don't you go look over there and do it in a materialist way? Like, why do you yeah. have to do it in the way that you do? You know, like, <laughs> I, but I think some of this follows. Like, there's do. this, there's this logic to the way Foucault is interpreted, where it's like he's the one who's going to check out the margins because the liberals and the Marxists they don't care about the margins. We care about the margins, and that seems very morally important to do, as you say. Yeah, yeah. But then it's like, why do you have to look at the margins like that? You know, and I I think that it's pretty idealist. I think that there's moments in which I'm quite sympathetic and having said, you know, for people listening, I did give Foucault his flowers several times in this episode. <laughs> I feel like what he ultimately thinks constrains people is the episteme. And like, that's why once we're in it, we can't really understand it until we change the episteme. Like we're so opaque to ourselves yeah. that we're not able to shift our own episteme. And I think, again, having some idea of like, we actually can have some kind of adequate enough knowledge of the world to understand it enough to try to do something about it now. Mm. And that people also understood their own social structures in their own time. And that's part of how we can meaningfully talk about political agency. To me, that's what a materialist would do, whether you're a Marxist or not, you could do it in some other way. I just think that like, he really thinks that our ideas are trapping us. Mm. Yeah, I, I want to build on that real quick, because you know, this has like been percolating in my head, you know, it, it sometimes seems to me that one of the, you know, I will say one of the worst legacies of Foucault, Foucauldianism, is this almost um, sort of paranoid subjectivity, where we never know what it is that we're actually doing. Nice. You think, you know, how many times have people told me, as Foucault says, you know, knowledge is power, knowledge is for cutting. And so you think you're talking about just like, look, Look at what happened with the Gomben during COVID. Like, you know, that, that is like, you know, that's like Foucault brain on steroids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, everything, everything. Do I want to know what happened with a Gomben? He wrote a bunch of bad poetry. 
well, he did that, but you know, everything is like you all don't realize that this is biopower and this is you know, the or, new yeah, yeah, form, and it becomes a sort of you know, <laughs> you know, anything that you say that you're doing, you don't really know that you might be doing something else. And so what nice. Lily was talking about, you know, this yeah. sort of fundamental opaqueness to ourselves, I think that is built into Foucault. And sometimes yeah. people look at it as a source of freedom. I don't want to know who I am. Doesn't Foucault yeah. says that later in you know, um, in, in his writings? And so it, it's how does this constrain Foucault is from, from becoming something like, you know, you start seeing in a really sort of memic way, mematic way, I see power everywhere. That's why there is the meme of schools are prisons, right. prisons yeah, are prisons, the yeah. cafeteria is a prison. And so it, it has this type of structure of you never know what it is that you're doing. And once you've like blown out that structure, uh, other ways that, you know, of, of thinking like social theory, they don't start from the principle that in principle, you can never really know what it is that you're doing. Yeah. That, you know, it is possible to grasp what is going on, who we are and what we are doing. And there's like a type of legacy of Foucaultianism that really leans hard on this opaqueness that all these things that you think yeah. that you're doing, all these principles that you have are really controverted and you won't realize it until afterwards. I do want to say that like this isn't like unique the, there's something about this that isn't just like unique to Foucault or to Foucaultians, though. Like a lot mm. of critical social theory departs from the supposition that the way things naturally or spontaneously appear is not adequate. And like it requires some kind of analysis in order to make sense of what we sort of spontaneously think. I, I, I mean, Marxists I, do it too, right? Marxists You're just doing do bourgeois. Your movement turns out to be bourgeois. It's actually not like you thought it was radical. It's yeah, captured who's captured with an ideology, right? Like yeah. this happens in other, what we would identify as materialist, radical and critical traditions as well. I think that the thing that like galls me based on what you were just saying, Will, is that like there seems to be this like further claim, not just that like how we tend to think sort of spontaneously is wrong, but that like there can't be like an actual adequate understanding of the present. Like there's something impossible in principle, right? Like a, mm -hmm. a, a hard block where like, I won't be, a, we won't be able to say, here it is, it's October 31st, 2021. And no one can, none of us can say today, but in 20 years, looking back, people will be able to say, oh, well, yeah, look at the episteme that they were in and what they actually thought or whatever. And like, there's yeah. something about like the in principle, impossible to, to get past opacity of the present that I find frustrating methodologically. And, yeah, and based, maybe on what you and, based on what you and Will are saying, I feel like maybe... Foucault just has like an utterly corrosive effect on like emancipatory struggle. <laughs> like, I, I, that's not where I intended that's the, to end that's up. Our, that's our out of context drop. That's the, that's the drop for the <laughs> because episode. Because you need like <laughs> movements need a kind of like epistemological self-confidence, like a, a, a sense of like of having yeah. understood something and like a, a sense of, of having some autonomy over the direction that they want things to go. And Foucault is just so utterly corrosive to all of those He's different not. ways of relating to oneself, both as yeah. an individual and as a group. Okay, I set out to I set out to defend some of Foucault, but I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that's like a really important point because I mean I don't know what this means to me actually. It's just a like a passing thought that I'm reading this book about. It's called Lenin Rediscovered, and it's basically an analysis of what is to be done that's like 550 pages long and um the first i've only gotten this that's like too many pages chapter. by the way much too long indeed. that's too long um but half of the first chapter is talking about how carl kotsky influences lenin and he's trying to 
overthrow this interpretation of Lenin. That is Lenin thinking that he needs to like the, bring the wisdom of socialism to the workers from the outside of the workers' struggle because he doesn't really think the workers can do it by themselves. And the book is, the reason it's this long is there is this received interpretation that that is what Lenin said. And this guy who wrote it, Lars Lee, is like, that is not what Lenin said. Lenin was extremely optimistic about the worker struggle. He was responding to Karl Kotsky's way of saying, like, you know, bringing the good news, you know, the good tidings of historical agency to the working class, you know, just being like very... And I was reading some of these passages in which... Karl Kotsky was saying stuff like this. And it is very much like proselytizing. Like we, like, you know, we can do it people and literally like spreading the good tidings of socialism. And I was thinking that, yeah, you do have to have a kind of teleological idea of like the inevitability of this. Okay, fine. You know, but on the other hand, it seems to like really inspire people. And so did Ferdinand <laughs> LaSalle. This is what he was doing. They were like, you know, workers really thought that they could control their destiny and in almost a quasi-religious way. And I think that we like think so much about the limitations about this way of thinking mm. that like, I, I'm just struck by like, but don't we need a little faith, you know, that we can go somewhere good, that we can build a society that we're going for. And I just don't think that like, like I get the problem there. But it just seems like the thing that makes Foucault very neoliberal is that he fundamentally discourages us from having any Utterly such faithless. ideas. Absolutely any faithless. Su any such yeah. ideas. And that is the neoliberal period. Like the idea that there mm. is no alternative and we cannot see beyond what we are doing right now, both epistemically and in general, is like that is kind of with all due respect, his legacy on kind of how people think about politics is a big picture. And so if there's like truth to that accusation that he is neoliberal, despite I think his own efforts to the contrary, you know, yeah. you're, I, I just think that that is what has been inherited, whether he meant it or not. And like, maybe you could take a lesson from some of the crudeness of like bringing good tidings from people yeah. from the beginning of the 20th century. Like maybe that it. isn't so, you know, maybe that's yeah. not like holistically bad. Well, for a Ernst guy who block like, intensifies, <laughs> yes, yeah. the episode is no, coming, this was, folks. <laughs> this, was a, this was like similar to a point that I wanted to make when, in the in the Kant episode um, about Kant's defense of teleology. Right? He just says, yeah. like, at the end of the day, like, this is an idea—the idea that things will kind of at least not work against us. Maybe like maybe necessarily work in our favor, but the idea that at least the universe isn't stacked against what this good thing that we want to do—build a kingdom of ends or whatever—like, you can't act. Unless you have, it's like a structural element of like the human psychology of action. Yeah. That like you mm -hmm. have to, you have to believe to some extent that it's possible. But the thing, the thing that's missing, right? And the reason that he has to be faithless here and why there's not this teleology is because there's no positive idea. There's only negative prescriptions with Foucault, right? Like mm. you get an analysis, for instance, of disciplinary power or of, you know, punitive power, punitive theories, state power, biopower, biopolitics. And these all just feel bad. It feels like I don't like those things. I don't like, I don't like it. disciplinary power is enacted on me. I don't like sovereign power, blah, blah, blah. I don't have an idea about what I would want instead. I just know that I don't like this. It's just uh -huh. negative. It's a negative, merely negative prescription at all times. right? So there's no question of spreading the good news of what. All I know is I'd like to not be governed the way that I am right now, which, again, is this sort of like nihilistic 
anarchistic, let's say, like in a, in a pejorative sense. I know we've got our good, mm-hmm. you know, Gustav Landauer is a good, he's our good, like positive, yes. mi- mystical <laughs> anarchist. But this is like a, a negative anarchism where like, you know, power as such seems like a problem. And actually, this was what was one of the cool things about these 71 lectures is that like when he says like, look, civil war involves people taking and using power he seems kind of jazzed about it, right? He doesn't seem like this is a bad thing. He's like, actually, this is cool. Check it out. He's thinking about that revolt. Like the one revolt, the one instance of rebellion or revolt that he actually pays some attention to, I think in the whole of his work. Yeah, but it's weird. Mm-hmm. Even even there, like he's not making claims about like, you know, why it was cool that they wanted to try to build a certain different kind of society. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, yeah. He's still just like It's just well, like they, this is what they were saying. They, this is what they were saying. They didn't like <laughs> getting taxed, so they used some power and I, I it's kind of sick. And it's like, all right, man, yeah. yeah, nice, I guess. Cool, cool. Insurrection's cool. But it's just negative. It's only ever negative yeah. prescriptions. I guess the one thing that was hopeful for positive was the Iranian revolution. That's true. Maybe it's an object for a whole other episode, but he was super psyched episode. about the Iranian revolution in 79. But I don't know. Here's here's a positive vision. Uh, communal democratic ownership of the means of production. You know? I feel it's like that's a cool. Pithy. It's a positive. Yeah. I mean, I think the last thing I, you know, I, I want to say on all this, and it's like, this actually feels like the thing that I can like never forgive Foucault for is the, you know, the, you know, his participation in, you know, the, the withering away of being able to actually, you know, state sort of a, a grand comprehensive vision of what freedom could look like. Mm. The amount of conversations I've had with Foucault dude, where I've been <laughs> like, you know, I think, you know, this is what, you know, it would look like for us to be more free and all of that is, you know, it's almost as if I'm duped. Like you can't, you can't possibly yeah. say that. You that just sounds like another you prison. possibly know that. Another yeah. prison. And, and that, you know, that we have to focus on these you know, sort of micro struggles and when I want to push like so what is the the systemic notion of freedom that we're talking about is as if that faculty that habit that character whatever you want to call it has been so withered away and I'm glad Lillian hinged this to our neoliberal moment and it's hard for me to see how Foucault doesn't participate in that logic mm. and yeah. it seems to me we we that is something that's so necessary. We need to get over this, you know, obsession with ineffable difference and, you know, little spots of utopia and actually being able to say, so what would freedom look like given our situation now? And not assuming that everything will be perfect, but we have to exercise that. Can I say what I, what I can't forgive Foucault for? I like that. Absolutely. What I can't forgive Foucault for is like being the single thinker who has the most take, the most uptake in all of academia. And so, like, if anything, you know how there's all this talk about red flags these days. Okay, like, it, it should be in a, Foucault in bio. It should be, flag, yeah, exactly. Foucault in bio, red flag. Like, it should be a real red flag that, like, fucking institutions suck this shit up. They love it. Like, like the, the dominant institutions of our society, they fucking love this shit. Do you know what I mean? Like, They're handing out discipline like, and punish on the corner. They're like, yo, check out the good word. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, no, but seriously, like if, if something is subversive, then, then it's, it, people come for it. You know what I mean? Like, it's not, it's not like you, it'll be ostracized. It'll be marginalized. Everyone, lo- everyone loves and the Foucault. fact that it is literally, I think literally still the most cited thing. He's the most cited motherfucker from the 20th in century. In the world, right? Yeah. Uh, from the last century. Yeah. That, that's like, a, that's a red flag. Red flags, fam. <laughs> and then they treat, like, and, and if you do, like, kind of, like, have some of these criticisms and it's like, okay, I respect the dude, but, like, yeah, there's some neoliberal problems going on here. Then they treat you like an intellectual peasant. Like, oh, you just don't get it. You vulgar yeah, yeah. motherfucker. Vulgar. You know, so. Yeah. Look at you no, trying to subjugate also, knowledge. Like, 
Here yeah. are the police. Like, oh, oh, I'm the police now. And half of the people <laughs> who are trying to come for Foucault are saying goofy nonsense about how he's a CIA op, which is like, who? I, what the fuck are you talking about? That and is where this is all going back that's to the ridiculous. beginning. Yeah. Like, that doesn't help you right. I mean, there's an important, I think it's always important when you, when someone gets accused of being an op, though, is to like ask yourself like, okay, you know, maybe they're not necessarily actually, you know, recruited by the CIA. But like, I just feel like you're they, giving could, the CIA could, too much fucking credit. I know, I know. Yeah. But like, everybody, but like, like, honestly, like, those people are the most incompetent no, but the motherfuckers. Question, no, but the, the Imagine is being like, smart enough to be like, let's pull this French guy over here. <laughs> no, but the, but the, yeah. but the, the question also, is like, could he be useful to the CIA? Because it makes no difference at a certain point whether... The CIA actually recruited him. Okay, but then you're giving American academics too much credit because then you think that they're like going to be like they had to be duped into like absorbing this stuff into the institutions. No, it just just passively turns out. I mean, apparently during the Cold War, there was like a cultural wing of like the CIA trying to like go around the world and elevate certain things like. I think Lillian's right though. Like that abstract expressionism is apparently an op too. That 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 might be the case. And also they were just dumb as shit. They were so rock. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I'd love picturing a couple CIA agents like by the UNS in Paris, like trying to fucking like pouring through a bunch of Lacan's like like lectures and (laughs) Foucault's history of madness. And trying to be like, you know what? This seems like it'd actually be really useful for undermining the left, which exists in our country at Yale. Yeah, yeah. We gotta undermine the we, Yale left. Maybe if we tell them that socialism is the real and thus can't be signified. Oh, I, folks, I think we did it. We I got think it. We did it. Yeah, they come back to they come back to Langley and they're like, "We've got a plan. We got it. We know we know exactly President what to Nixon, do." Have we got something to tell you? Yeah. Oh my God. We don't need McCarthyism anymore. We got a plan. We have the symbolic <laughs> and the real. Yeah, exactly. Oh man. Oh man. All right. Well, maybe that's a good spot to end our discussion today. Um, new episodes of What's Left of Philosophy. Wait, that's so good. Wait, wait. What's going on no, here? Keep going. Just go. Uh, close it out, man. Close it out. Wait, 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 wait. Should I not close it out yet? No, it's perfect. Edit. It's no, perfect. I'm just thinking about Nixon holding the accrete in his hand. <laughs> 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 yeah, Nixon, Henry Kissinger's got his copy of Mo, Les Moets Shows. Like, <laughs> oh my God, H.W. Bush, man, just walking around, <laughs> like difference in repetition. and <laughs> Literally, the Bush family, difference and repetition. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, that all has to make it into the episode, right? Like, oh, that's <laughs> going in, that's going in. <laughs> Oh my god, okay, so new episodes of What's Left of Philosophy come out every two weeks wherever you get your podcasts. Before closing out today, we'd like to take a minute to thank some of the people who are supporting the show on Patreon. We couldn't do this without you, and we're really grateful. Today's new patrons are Michael Group, Sammy Farhawi, Ole Rausch, Lumu, Paul Goldrick Kelly, Bernard J. Charnley, Graham, David Meesters, Brad Pasenek, Andrew Culp, Mira Maxwell, A Smiley Face, Matthew, Nick Fort, Rose Rousen, ARR, Leo Nicolaitis, Curtis Brown, Sean Young, and Sosation. Thank you all very much. Uh, If you like what we're doing and want to support the show, please subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash philosophy. 
Follow us on Twitter at Left of Phil. And don't forget to leave us good reviews and comments in your podcast app, please. So with that, thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next time. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.